Welcome to Chasing Three Hours, a podcast about what runners are chasing, why they keep pushing themselves, and what keeps them curious. I'm Josh Peterson. Today's podcast is brought to you by Peak Performance. If you're in the Omaha, Nebraska area, stop by one of their four locations and mention Chasing Three Hours for $15 off your first pair of shoes at regular price. Today's interview is with Matt Fitzgerald, author, coach, and former runner. We discuss what's taken him off the trail, why running still matters so much to him, the 80-20 rule, and so much more. Enjoy today's interview with Matt Fitzgerald. Matt Fitzgerald, welcome to Chasing Three Hours. Great to be with you. I appreciate you for joining me on the podcast today. I begin every conversation by asking the guest how their most recent run went. How was the uh, most recent run? When was it? What did you do? Oh, boy, we're going to go off the rails right away. Uh, so <laughs> so uh, I have long COVID. I cannot run anymore. Um, so my last run went disastrously. <laughs> oh. And I can't remember it also. But other than that, I know for sure it uh, put me in a hole for several weeks, as a matter of fact. Well, if you, I mean, if, I guess if you don't mind diving into that, well, how, how have you handled that, given that your relationship with running goes back many, many years? Uh, I know starting kind of at the Boston Marathon, it seemed in the early 80s, yep. was a part of your life. You've written many books. We're going to talk about one in particular tonight. How, how have you handled the inability to run? Well, you know, uh, you know, as you can imagine, it's been very challenging, uh, though I will say um, if, if this had happened. So I got COVID when I was 48. I did recover from the acute virus and was healthy for about six months before I started to slide back into the chronic version. By then I was 49, started running when I was 11. So, you know, I had a long journey as a runner and, uh, and my cup was full, as they say. Um, so, you know, if, if the same thing had happened when I was 32, um, it would have been a lot more devastating, I, I can tell you. So it, it has sucked. Um, but, you know, I have so few regrets just because of, you know, just all that, um, all that the sport gave me for so many years. And, you know, and so I've handled it by, um, you know, just finding other ways to channel my passion for the sport, which, which is not dimmed in, 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 in the least. So, um, for example, um, I, uh, late last year sold my house in California, moved, uh, to Flagstaff where I'd spent a summer in 2017 as a fake pro runner and opened up uh, a business called dream run camp, which is, um, an opportunity for runners of all abilities and descriptions to experience like, the, the lifestyle of, of a professional runner. Um, and just, um, you know, so now I'm a, a, I'm a host and a, and a coach um, and an experience facilitator, and it's very fulfilling. So uh, I would love nothing more than to be able to run alongside the, the runners who come here to live out their dreams. Um, but this really is the next best thing. What do you miss most about it? Yeah, I, I, I mean, a lot, um, but, but number one would be competing. Oh, not, yeah, not even just competing. Cause you do that, you know, a handful of times per year, but like, you know, it, I didn't realize just how much, uh, it did for me to have a big goal in front of me. Like, uh, I mean, I, I understood, but like when it was taken away, I really understood like you know, when I was like focused on, you know, some big ambition I was trying to achieve as a runner, like everything lined up around it. Like I was a better husband. I was more productive in work. I was happier. I slept better. You know, every, just everything was great. And, and there's really no substitute for that. Like I've thought, I thought, well, there's gotta be some kind of alternative, but there, you know what, there, there isn't. <laughs> I've had multiple conversations with people along those lines of like, they miss, maybe it's just a rest day. And so they don't run or, you know, an injury obviously. And then it takes them away from the sport and how it, it actively ruins their mood and they have to focus on being a better partner, friend, whatever it is. H how has that been for you as, do you have to kind of make sure that you're kind of all the way there in that regard, that you don't have this thing that was so important in your life for, for so many years? Yeah, that, yeah, that's a good question. I mean, you know, in, in, to be perfectly candid, like I skew toward irritable, like as a person, <laughs> you know, naturally, like even on my good days, like I'm, I'm kind of prickly. Um, and so, you know, when things aren't going my way, like I'm extra prickly and which is tough, you know, cause you know, you know, my, I, I don't have kids. 
thank goodness, I guess. <laughs> but, but, you know, my wife is a saint. Like she is just a wonderful human being, like deserves only the absolute best in a life partner. And, you know, frankly, you know, I just haven't, um, I, I'm getting there because like, it, I mean, you know, cause <laughs> it matters to me, you know, like, you know, cause I, I hate myself when I like, I snap, you know, and there's no good justification other than I feel crappy. Um, so, you know, it's, it's, it's a process, but on one level, I also embrace it because like, you know, when, when things go your way are going your way, it's easy to be a dick, you know, like, you know, but when they aren't, that's really a test of, you know, your, your character. So I'm trying to, you know, really embrace it as, as that. And just like, okay, you know, here's an opportunity to just mature that I wouldn't have had if things had kept going my way. Let, let's go all the way back. You mentioned it. Your, your running journey begins as an 11 year old. It's at the 1983 Boston Marathon. You run the last mile with your dad who, who had participated that day and, and a couple of brothers. What do you remember most about that race and, and I guess what it maybe sparked in you? Um, you know, what I, what I remember most vividly is, um, just, it, it felt like, um, it felt like my first taste of fame or, or a first taste of fame, you know, because, you know, the Boston Marathon was very, very different in 1983. I mean, you couldn't do what we did today, you know, like, first of all, my dad was a bandit and, and, and back then, and today, like bandits, like people think they should be drawn and quartered, but, but people, you need to understand, like, Back then, Boston, the Boston Marathon, there was no prize money, no appearance money. Like when Bill Rogers won four times, he got an olive, you know, crown around his head, like and a medal. Like that, he might not even have gotten a medal. <laughs> so, and they called it the People's Race, and um, and every year, two thirds of the people who ran it were bandits. Two thirds, crazy. So it was, it was like, yeah, it was like a six thousand person race, and. Um, and so it was, just, and the, the race, you know, the race organizers did not care, you know, like they still got, you know, the bandits got Gatorade at aid stations. They got a space blanket at the finish line. But anyway, what, you know, so it was very different, but it was also very much the same. Um, uh, and, and what was the same about it was like, you know, the whole city came out for, for that event. And this is back when there was only a handful of big city marathons, you know, like, and, and, and Boston was like the oldest, it was the most you know, the most special. And it just it had that same atmosphere, like where the, the city really embraced it. And so, you know, I'm in the last mile too, where it's like, you know, crowds eight deep on either side of the road, just shouting their heads off. And it felt like it was all for me. Like, as I describe it in my book, Running the Dream, it felt like I had like, you know, gone to sleep and woken up as Elvis. And, <laughs> and like, you know, I like to say, you know, the first mile I ran was the last mile of the Boston Marathon. And like, it, you know, like, I mean, you're going to be sprung on running after that. It's just like, oh, is this what running is? Okay, <laughs> sign, sign me up. What is it like then it, when the next time you do it, I mean, it's not that. That is, you know, it's like your first hole of golf. You, you get a hole in one or you're at some major in front of all these people. The next time you do it, you're going to be essentially alone or, or certainly in a much quieter environment. Was, was it something that you found like that passion for still immediately when it came without the pomp and circumstance? Yes. I mean, yeah, I mean, it, of course it, it was different. I mean, that next run was the next day back home in New Hampshire where we lived in a, a quiet rural neighborhood. Um, and my dad would, he had like a favorite six mile route. And so this is back in the days when any 11 year old kid could just go out and bang out six miles, no problem. Um, and it wasn't even that slow. I think it was like, you know, 45 minutes or something. And, and yeah, I, I was alone. Um, but I was also 11. And so those crowds were still ringing in my ears. And like, you know, I was like, you know, like I, I, I fell in love with Joan Benoit. She was still Joan Benoit, not Joan Benoit Samuelson yet. You know, she ran a world best for the marathon, 222 and change that day. You know, I got to see her do it, do it. And I just thought she was like, you know, one of my earliest sports heroes. I thought, wow, what an incredible athlete. And so like, you know, you know, I'm out there just like imagining I'm Joe Benoit, you know, you know, running a 222 marathon. So it didn't really matter that I was alone on a dirt road running half Jones pace. What was the the um, the running 
scene for lack of a better word like what was it like in in school in in the early 80s you know i i have to imagine it's much different now but probably the same in in ways as well what was it like back then yeah i mean that that was you know it was kind of the height of the first running boom you know you know, you had, um, you know, it was sort of, it was kicked off by Frank Shorter's uh, gold medal performance in the 1972 Olympic marathon. And, and then you had, you know, you know, we had Prefontaine and, and Nike with, you know, Bowerman and Phil Knight. And so there was, a, a and then you, you had Jim Fix come along and, um, you know, write the complete book of running. And he was like, you know, a former two pack a day smoker uh, who just transformed himself and made the whole thing really relatable to folks like my dad. Um, you know, runner's world magazine was just, you know, you know, taking off. And so it, 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 it was sort of a, a big deal. And it wasn't like, you know, like, you know, Frank Shorter, when he was training for the 72 Olympic marathon used to get run off the road by rednecks, you know, <laughs> You know, like, and so, you know, a lot had changed in 11 years. Like it wasn't, you weren't considered like a weirdo. And yet, you know, like my dad was the only dad in the neighborhood who was running marathons. I mean, that was the, the first of three for him. So still like, you know, you, there was some cachet, you know, associated with like, you know, actually going out there and doing it. You mentioned your time when you went out for that six mile run. I mean, sub 48 as an 11 year old, that's, that's moving pretty well. What kind of success did you have in your early running career and in what junior high, middle, middle school and high school? Yeah. You know, the funny thing was, you know, so my dad was, um, I mean, it's funny because like one thing that actually was different about running in 1983 was that only pretty serious athletes did it. Yeah. Like, you know, this was well before Oprah <laughs> ran a marathon. Even Jim Fix, the former two pack a day smoker ended up being actually pretty darn fast. Um, and so my dad, I think he ran, um, in Boston, like it was somewhere like 343 or 345, somewhere around there. And he was way back there. I mean, I remember, you know, that day, 93 men broke 220 uh, in the marathon. And that hasn't been done since to my knowledge, um, except in maybe like Olympic trials marathon. So like, you know, the bar was high. It's a little bit sort of like Ironman today where it's just like, you know, you're hardcore if you even bother. <laughs> um, and, and, but so, you know, but my dad, like he, he, he was a big guy um, and, you know, just kind of a plotter and he didn't really care about times at all. Um, uh, but, but me, I, so I was just, I wasn't even thinking about times either, but I just sort of discovered that I was actually a lot better than my dad <laughs> at, at, at running. And so, that that became another hook for me. I, I liked you know the romance of it, you know the bond that it gave me with with my dad. Um, but also, it turned out like I I, I could be because uh, I wasn't really good at any other sport, and like here was a sport where I could actually be competitive. Um, and, and so that that drew me in for sure. So like the balance of liking running because you liked running versus liking running because you were good at it. Where do you think that you kind of fell? It. it, it it feels like kind of a 50, 50 thing. Um, you know, cause I remember thinking I, it was weird. Um, it, cause it didn't take me long to, to, you know, you know, initially like, you know, I, I remember like in my freshman year of high school, I ran the mile, um, in outdoor track and I ran it like that's the only event I wanted to do. And I ran it like nine times and I, PR the first seven times, <laughs> you know, so like, but like that doesn't last. Right. Sure. <laughs> um, and so, you know, I got, I got to the point where, you know, I started to just, um, at first it's like, Oh, sky's the limit. But, but by the time I was a, a sophomore in high school, like I knew I wasn't going to the Olympics. Um, but it didn't have, um, it didn't, it didn't dampen my excitement for the journey ahead at all. I remember at one point, and this makes me sound like um, a chauvinist, but I, I promise it's not, that's not the spirit of it. Like I remember around that age setting a goal because I wanted to run, run throughout high school in, in college and beyond college. And after college, my goal was to break the women's world record in every event. <laughs> Cause like, not be, not because I couldn't stand being beaten by women, but just like that was the level I saw myself as being at. Like, all right, you know, I'm not going to set men's world records, but I'm like, that's a good goal, you know, <laughs> you know, for, for a pretty good uh, male runner. Uh, but so, you know, part of what so 
you know, you know, I was, I was, I was good at the sport, but I wasn't the best. And, and I think what, what, what made it, um, what made, you know, made it so that I was okay, just where I was, was that I actually just loved running for its own sake, you know, as much as I love being competitive. So I, I want to pl- talk about eighty twenty in a, in a few minutes because that was the book that I read by you that that I mean it really changed my life a couple of years ago ahead of a of a marathon in particular but I want to go back to this time in your life as well and talk I guess about the science of training at that moment versus eventually what you were to learn how were like how were you running what what kind of runs were you doing given that the research I, I just I have to imagine it was in a much different state back then than it is today or even when you when you wrote that book almost a decade ago now yeah so you know when I started off I was you know I was 11 years old and yeah. and, and, and taking guidance my dad didn't tell me what to, he wasn't that kind of dad like you know he he never told me to run he just ran and made made it attractive to me I'm like well that looks cool and you know I look up to my dad so I'll try that but he, he never gave me as far as I can think of like any guidance. So, you know, with my 11 year old brain, like my thought was like, okay, I'm going to run six miles every other day and I'm going to try and PR every time. (laughs) And you know, that lasted about a week and I'm like, what's wrong? I'm not getting better anymore. Um, but of course now I know that that's (laughs) not how it works, but you know, I was, I was very fortunate. So in high school, I, I was influenced by coaches who, um, who in turn were influenced by Arthur Lydiard. So Arthur Lydiard was a legendary New Zealand coach, um, who rose to fame in 1960, uh, at the, at the Rome Olympics, three New Zealand runners won medals, which was kind of unheard of for a country that small. And all three were coached by, by him. And he had developed like what was then a revolutionary approach to training that involved running a lot. Um, you know, his, his, his athletes were really the first ones that just had a, a staple diet of 100 plus mile weeks. But most of those miles were really easy. Um, and there was no science behind it. Like Lydiard was a complete trial and error guy. He just he, he guinea pigged on himself initially, uh, tried a lot of different things. Um, and then found that that seemed to work really well and, and turned out it worked really well for everyone. And so, you know, fast forward, you know, 25 years or so. And like, that was like, that's pretty much how all the elites were training, how most of the high level college runners were training. And, you know, I was, I was part of like a state championship level cross country team, um, at my high school. And so typically, you know, little bit more of a, you know, luck of the draw type of thing. But like, you know, chances were at, at a strong high school program, you would have coaches who understood Lydiard principles. And, 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 and actually, you know, not that much has changed in, in the broad contours like that. Because like, you know, the point, I'm, a point I'm, I find myself making to runners all the time is like human beings are not, not smartphones. We don't, we don't just like, you know, get new features every year. Like the human body is the human body. And so when you figure out the optimal way to train, that's it, you know, game over. Like it's not, you're not going to just like have another paradigm take over, you know, cause it's, 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 it's work. You know, you're applying it to the same unchanging vessel. Um, so for sure, a lot has changed. There've been a lot of advancements, you know, since I was in, in high school, but, but that foundation, run a lot, and, and most of your miles should be um, slow and easy, that has not changed. Um, so got lucky there. Going into college, um, what, what led to burnout for you? Because I know you, you planned on running in college at Haverford. What, what changed? Um, you know, I became kind of a classic head case. Um, well, I guess, you know, there's more than one kind of, of head case. Uh, but for me, you know, as every runner who's done more than a couple races knows, like, you know, racing is painful. You know, if, if you do it right, <laughs> it, it should be. Um, and, 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 and I, you know, and, and a lot of runners struggle with that. Um, you know, and, and for me, you know, because, you know, I, I was at the level where I was in contention to win in, you know, individual state championship titles, and to, I, I discovered that, um, you know, 
you know, having a little bit of talent and being relatively new to the sport. So I was developing quickly. That was only going to take me so far, you know, to, to, to make that last leap to be a state champion. I just had to dig deeper and suffer more than I had before. And I just couldn't, I just didn't have the wherewithal to do it. You know, I saw that it seemed to come relatively easily to certain other runners that I was competing against. Um, but, but I really struggled with it and it just became like a, a downward spiral that really ruined the sport for me. Like I remember like sitting in a math class, like on a Wednesday before a Saturday cross country race, just literally sick with anxiety. And it wasn't like, it wasn't, you know, the Jonah complex fear of success. Like I was okay winning. <laughs> like that's not the kind of head case I was like, I, I just feared the pain. And, and so it, you know, I, I ended up doing some shameful, what I consider shameful things like, faking an injury in the middle of a race to avoid having to finish it. I once hid in the woods to avoid the start of a, of a two mile track race <laughs> um, that I'd performed very, very well at, you know, the, the year before um, and just hid in the woods and like skip the start and like, just hated myself for it. But eventually I, I just, I'm like, uh, either I, I find a way out of this hole or I quit and I ended up quitting. So what, what brought you back? Uh, it, it was, uh, it was happenstance really, you know, um, you know, that's, that's life. <laughs> uh, you know, there's a lot of luck involved, whether you like to admit it or, or not. And so, you know, I, when I quit running, I just became a gym rat. Um, you know, I was, I was the skinniest kid I ever knew or saw in, in throughout my childhood. So, you know, when I was running my best times in high school, I was six foot one, 138 pounds. And, and like, I remember like the, you know, the other co-captains of, of the cross country team, like laughing at me for how skinny I was. And I was looking at them like, you're really, really skinny. <laughs> <laughs> like this is saying something. If, if you find my skinniness funny. Um, and so I decided, well, if I'm not going to be a runner anymore, I'm going to get yoked and like, you know, I'll be more attractive to, to girls and, and whatever. And, um, and so got really into that. So I did get, I did, I did put on muscle, but I also put on quite a bit of fat as well. And I thought I was done. You know, I, yeah. I, I you know, I, I didn't really miss it. I, there was a little bit of nostalgia, a little bit of like what might've been, but I kind of moved on. And then two years after college, but one thing I knew for sure that that didn't change is I wanted to be a writer. Um, you know, I got, I got the writing bug from my dad as long as well as the, the writing bug, uh, the running bug, um, so my dad's a, a novelist. Um, and so I knew I was going to be a writer. And a couple of years after I graduated from Haverford, I moved to San Francisco and um, just wanted to pursue a, a writing career. And I was, I was going to, I was, you know, 24, you know, pretty fresh out of college. And I, I was just going to take the first decent, you know, writing or editing gig I could get. And it ended up being with a startup endurance sports magazine called uh, Multisport. And just, you know, it was just a function of really of being back, being in that milieu, you know, surrounded by athletes, you know, interviewing and writing about athletes. It just, um, there was like, there was like a, an ember, you know, just like that hadn't been doused deep, deep inside my soul. And like, it, it, it took a while. It wasn't an overnight thing. It's like, oh, you know, the comeback begins today. It was like, I, first I just like, you know, kind of dipped my toes back into, well, you know, I could stand to lose a few pounds. Like I'll start jogging. And, you know, it was a slippery slope. And, and before I knew it, I was just full on, you know, making up for lost time and, and trying to, you know, test my limits. So you, you mentioned, you know, you had that goal to become a writer. You had that as a kid. Did, w at what point in, in this process then do you decide, I want to, I'm going to want to write, obviously. I really like running. I'm going to marry the two beyond just, you know, writing, uh, for a publication, but I'm going to start writing a book or books. So what, how, how did that ultimately unfold for you? You know, th that took a while as well, you know? Uh, so when I arrived in San Francisco, my plan was to just hang out for a year, apply to graduate school. Um, I wanted to get an MFA in creative writing, um, and then teach or whatever. Uh, that was the master plan. Um, but that, you know, that job with multi-sport, so that magazine actually didn't last very long, just got two issues out. But I jumped from that to um, a, a gig with Triathlete Magazine. And, and uh, multi-sport was actually founded by a gentleman named 
Bill Kotowski, uh, who was also 12, you know, 12 years before in 83, the same year my dad ran Boston, had founded Triathlete Magazine. Um, so the, I, those jobs were just so much fun. <laughs> and, and also, you know, living in the Bay Area as a 20-something uh, was so much fun. I'm like, I did apply to grad school. I did get in. I didn't go. <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna like see where the, where this goes. But still, it, you know, honestly, like I, I, I compartmentalized my paid work and um, what I considered my like artistic or creative work, where like I really like expressed the best of myself. And so, you know, you know, I, you know, I. I I tried to do a good job with, with the endurance sports jur- journalism, but I also did a ton of writing on the side. And I'm like, you know, I'm going to make my name on this other stuff, you, you know, but that other writing that I did that I, I thought was going to be my, the stuff that I built my reputation on, it actually sucked. <laughs> and I, I didn't, I, I, I was, it was kind of self-indulgent where like w- when I was writing for magazines, like I, I was responsible to, you know, editors and, and also, you know, subscribers, you know, like, you know, I, I had a job to do. I had to communicate. I couldn't, I couldn't show off. It was like, look at my fancy vocabulary or look, look at, look at how long I can make one single sentence. Like, you know, I had to be empathetic and that was actually good training. Um, and it sort of undid some of like, you know, the, the academic style of writing that I was, that was inculcated, you know, through, you know, high school and college but I was still allowed, no one was stopping me from, you know, being self-indulgent and showing off in the other stuff. And, and so I, I didn't get anywhere with it. You know, I, I wrote entire books that I tried to get published, couldn't get published because they were garbage. Um, <laughs> and so eventually I woke up and I realized like, you know, Matt, like where, where is the law that says you can't write a truly great book about sports? <laughs> you know, like, I don't know. I don't know where that law exists. So then, you know, just it wasn't like a, like an aha epiphany, but like you know, there was sort of a, a pivotal moment where I I decided, you know what, like I'm going to go all in. I'm, I'm going to put whatever whatever talent I have for writing. I'm going to put it. I'm going to invest all of it into serving athletes and see what I can do with that. Back to the podcast in a moment, but a word from my friends at Peak Performance, four locally owned stores in the Omaha metro area and Omaha's only locally owned running store for 30 years. If you stop by and mention the podcast, Chasing Three Hours, you get $15 off of your first pair of shoes at regular price. I've been going to Peak for over a half decade now. I had some issues back in 2017 and I stopped by thinking, hey, I want an insert. This is going to help. And they said, look, we'll get you one today, but the next time that you are signing up for a marathon, stop by and let's take you through our five-step gait analysis process and let's determine your arch type, your lower leg alignment, and we will help you get better as a runner. I had a lot of injuries in the lead up to the end of 2017. I have been in great shape ever since then, and so much of that is attributed to the great folks at Peak Performance. Whatever your arch type is, there is a shoe for it. So again, stop by one of their four locally owned stores in the Omaha metro area, mention Chasing Three Hours, and get $15 off of your first pair of shoes at regular price. Back to Matt Fitzgerald. So I want to ask you about 8020. I, I read this a couple of years ago, and um, at that point I had run three marathons, but I was kind of looking to like take that next step. And I don't remember how I heard about it or how I stumbled upon it, but the, the book is titled 8020 Running, Run Stronger and Race Faster by Training Slower. And I wonder for you writing this, like you had already written multiple books about running. So what was the inspiration to dive into maybe this specific subject? Because it's obviously a really important one. And one of the pieces of advice I always give someone who, when they ask me like, Hey, what, what would you say? I'm always just like run slow. And then I'm like, read this book. It'll explain oh. why, why this book and, and why this book when it came out compared to the other ones that you had already written before. Yeah. So, you know, you know, circa, um, you know, 2010, um, the landscape was so different back then in terms of like, who who the major influencers in, influencers were in how runners trained like and it was very frustrating to me because I didn't think 
I didn't think most runners were getting guidance from reputable sources. Like it was, it was a lot of, um, it wasn't scientists and it wasn't like sort of like, you know, mainstream coaches, you know, with like, you know, who, who'd come up the right way, you know, you know, who'd run in high school and then, you know, run in college and then, you know, started coaching in college or, or whatever. It was like, it was like a lot of CrossFit trainers and, and like, like Johnny come lately's to running who are like, you fools have it all wrong. You have no idea what you're doing, but you know, what you need to do is train like a CrossFitter or, or, or whatever. And, and to, like, I, you know, I knew enough to know that that was really terrible <laughs> guidance. <laughs> but, and then I saw that, you know, millions of, of runners were following it. And what baffled me was like, why are voices like mine and not just mine, but you know, like, you know, the scientists and like, and, and the really great coaches, why are those voices getting drowned out? You know, it's just, it, it seemed like kind of like nightmarishly absurd to me that like, we didn't even have a microphone, you know, to like, to even try to influence how, and, and, and to me, like it, it mattered. It, it wasn't just like, oh, I want to be the popular one. It's like runners were being hurt <laughs> by this guidance. Like, like it, it, um, it, it wasn't good. So um, I wanted to push back against it. Um, and so just sort of like, you know, just, you know, you know, be a voice for kind of the mainstream. <laughs> um, and, and lucky for me, it was right around that time that um, an American born uh, exercise physiologist who uh, works and teaches in, in Norway uh, by the name of Steven Seiler, um, you know, he, 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 he was one of the first, um, academics to really rigor, rigorously study like in like sort of an empirical way, how do the best endurance athletes in the world train? And what, you know, his, his major discovery was that, um, all across the world and across endurance sports disciplines. So not just in running, but in cycling, triathlon, swimming, rowing, uh, cross country skiing, uh, the elite athletes spend about 80% of their weekly training time at low intensity, the other 20% at moderate and, and high intensity. And, um, and I thought, aha, <laughs> like I knew this all along. Like I didn't know it was 80, 20, but you know, that's, you know, in, in high school, I, I could tell you if I, I, I mean, I have my training logs from back then. I, I can t tell you, I was doing, it was, it, that was the Lydiard method. I was doing about 80% of my training at low intensity. That's what I had preached as a coach uh, and, and an author, but there was no name for it. You know, there, then there was no real rigorous science uh, behind it. And there was no like real, well, you know, what, what the mainstream lacked was like, like a hook, <laughs> you know, something to make it sexy. Like CrossFit was sexy until it wasn't. Um, and so I'm like, okay, here we go. Like, you know, so it basically was the same message I'd always been preaching, but I had Siler's research and eventually, you know, that of other, uh, you know, other scientists. Um, and so I decided I I'm going to run with that. This is going to be my, you know, my, my way of pushing back against the bad advice. I see so many runners getting the, the research of it. What, why is 80% the number? Why isn't it, you know, lower? Why isn't the number higher? Why is 80% just kind of that sweet spot? Yeah, I mean, you know, obviously it's not exactly 80% sure, sure. all the time, but it is, it's actually uncannily close. <laughs> it is. Um, yeah. Um, and, and, and the reason is, you know, you know, you know, to put it in sort of lay terms, you know, the, you know, everyone understands that there is a wide spectrum of exercise intensities. Like, so you know, everything from like a, a very brisk walk or the slowest jog imaginable. So that would be, you know, at the low end, you know, obviously you and I just sitting here talking to each other, we're not exercising, you know, so that's, that's, yeah, that we're, we're at a certain intensity, but it's actually below the threshold that counts as exercise. So, so that, you know, fr from that, from that bottom threshold that counts as exercise all the way up to sprinting as fast as you can, you know, that is the spectrum. And, and, you know, di different intensities have different effects on the body and they're all good. You know, like, you know, if you, if you run for a long time at, at a slow pace, you get better at fat burning. You know, if you sprint all out, 
uh, you become more economical as a runner um, and more efficient. And then, so, you know, every slice of the intensity spectrum has something to offer. So when you're looking at like, how should I train? Like, it's not a matter of like, what's the best intensity? I'll do only that. It's, oh, there's something, you know, I, I should hit all of these intensities, you know, cause like each, each one does something that the others doesn't quite match. So, okay, now we're getting a little further, right? So we, we understand that we want to have a balance of different intensities in our training. Then, then the last question is like, all right, what, what are the, what are the proper proportions? Um, how much high intensity, how much moderate, how much low? And, you know, again, this is very intuitive, like at low intensity, it's, it's very, it's relatively gentle on the body. It's still exercise. It still imposes stress on the body, but it's relatively gentle. And so a little bit of low intensity doesn't go very far, right? Cause it's gentle. Like there's some benefit, but only it's, it's only a very small benefit compared to high intensity, a little bit of high intensity. And this is scientifically proven provides a lot of benefit. However, there's also, there's benefit and then there's tolerance because low intensity is very gentle, you can tolerate a lot of it, which is great news because a little bit only provides a little benefit, but because you can tolerate a lot, you can heap it on and keep benefiting more and more and more. It's like, it's like the gift that keeps on giving. Whereas high intensity, a little bit provides a lot of benefit, but our tolerance because it's so stressful is, is low. So a lot of high intensity just breaks you. So you know, when you put all that together, you end up with, you know, a formula where you're hitting all of the intensities, but you're doing a lot of low intensity because you need a lot and you can handle a lot. And you're doing only a little bit of high intensity because you don't need all that much and you can't tolerate all that much. When you sat down to write this book, I wonder what kind of runner you had in mind that was going to read it. As I said, a couple minutes ago, I had, I had a few marathons under my belt. I, I felt like I got it at the, at the perfect time. You said something as well about like, it's, it's uncanny how so often these training plans, you'll end up at 80% or your, your running logs from when you were a kid, they ended up at 80%. I remember after I read it, I went back and I looked through what I had done ahead of, and it was right after a virtual marathon. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I was doing this and I didn't know exactly what I was doing. And then that helped me unlock what was yeah. what ended up being a 35 minute PR in, in 2021. So what I wonder if, if it was someone like me, if it was someone different, like as many people as possible, what kind of runner were you thinking about? You know, you know, another thing that the research shows that like, you know, at the, at the elite level, everyone is doing this. Yeah. You know, and it bears mentioning until, until, you know, 80, the 80, 20 principle became well known. They didn't know they were doing it. You know, like, you know, I went back and looked at Bill Rogers training logs, you know, you know, he won Boston marathon four times, New York city marathon four times in the, uh, you know, mid to late seventies. Um, and I, I, I crunched the numbers on his log. It was 80, 20. Well, you know, Steven Seiler was, you know, in grade school then, <laughs> you know, so like there, there was no 80, 20 and that's just it. Like 80, 20 was not invented by a scientist. It, 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 it evolved, you know, through blind trial and error, just with, you know, athletes, you know, at the highest level, just, you know, just experimenting. Yeah. Um, so, so at the elite level, it's universal. Everyone's doing it, even whether they know it or not. But if you go just like one level down from the elite, nobody's doing it. it it's really, it's really weird. It's almost like it's just two different, like hermetically, you know, sealed spheres like they're all runners but the twain shall never meet you know like <laughs> you know the you know the recreational runners all the way up to the very competitive level don't know what the pros are doing and the pros don't care <laughs> what, <laughs> what everyone else is doing so to answer your question i was writing the book for everyone except the pros you know because like like what, what what the research shows is that everyone else is doing it wrong um, so it was for Oprah Winfrey, uh, but it was also for, you know, you know, the guys and gals trying to break three hours in a marathon. You know, like it, it was needed by almost everyone. What, um, what do you think is the biggest barrier for runners to, to run, to run this way, to run slower? What, 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 when you hear from people and they're like, it's hard because of blank, what does that answer so often be? And I guess, what do you tell them? Yeah. Um, 
you know, the, the amateur sociologist in me like had a field day, like actually trying to, uh, you know, figure out like, what are the barriers? Because it really is kind of a sociological question, like, or so socio-psychological. Um, and, and, uh, you know, I, I, I identified a number of, of barriers. Um, but I think you know, like the, you know, number one, um, is, you know, interestingly, so, you know, I, and I cite some of this research in 8020 running, like, you know, what, what has been found is that if, if you just ask someone, could be a runner, just could be a general fitness person, to go out and do an unstructured session of cardio exercise, it could be bicycle for 45 minutes, it could be run for five miles. If, like, if it's just like fill a certain amount of time and distance with an activity and no further guidance, like almost everyone chooses the same intensity. <laughs> like they have no idea what anyone else is doing. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're just, they're just making their own choice. And yet everyone does the same thing. And what they choose is a, is a moderate intensity. So, and, and what, you know, what, when the researchers who designed these studies, what they suspected was like that there was some sort of like, like physiological efficiency, sweet spot that people, they, they didn't know, they didn't consciously know, but they would just automatically slide into it just because like the organism, like it just felt right, you know, like it was a Goldilocks zone and that didn't pan out at all. Like that wasn't what was going on. What was going on was people were choosing an intensity based on how it felt just like a conscious perception of the, the effort level. And, and so the, and okay. So why do people conscious, well, well, you know, p- consciously, feel their way to a moderate intensity. You know, my conjecture is that there are two competing instincts that people bring into, you know, an unstructured exercise session like that, where you can just choose your own intensity. One is you want to get it over with, (laughs) you know, it's like, because you look at it as like a task and and like, you know, it's like if you, if you have uh, like a pile of wood to chop, you want to get the wood chopped, you know, so you can go inside and have some hot chocolate. Um, so that you know that motivates you to go fast to to raise the intensity, but there's a competing instinct which is you know a natural desire not to suffer, and you know the the more the faster you go, the more intensely you run or work or chop wood, you know the more it hurts and you don't want to hurt unnecessarily. There's no one making you uh, do it, so that that instinct pulls you in the opposite direction of the let's get this over with instinct. So if you end up compromising between these two instincts, where do you end up? Right, right in the middle. And so that's my story and I'm sticking to it. I, I couldn't agree more. It's, it's As you were saying that, I was thinking of uh, a, a few years before that when I was kind of in a rut with running and I would go out and it was like, I'm not going to go as fast as I can. I just, I'm going to go in the kind of get it done pace. And for me at the time, that was like an eight-minute mile. I'm going to get it done, and then I, I can move on with the rest of my day. Um, and, and I wasn't seeing any gains, and it was only until I started slowing down that I started seeing those. I, I wonder, you know, like I was having a conversation with somebody earlier this week about um, just the number of like runners it seems like that, that we have seen increase over the last few years. You know, I, I, was, I was on the wrong end of the Boston qualifying stuff. I missed, I missed the, the new cutoff by 16 seconds when that came out Oof. a couple of weeks ago. Absolutely brutal. I never thought that a 513 buffer would end up working against me. But uh, so we, we were talking just about the last few years and how it seems like a lot of us started running. I, I got my thing going right before COVID. I know a lot of people started running when COVID happened. And so I have to imagine along the, the way, your books have sold more because people are like, okay, I, I want to figure out what I am doing. I got I want to get better. I want to get faster, whatever it is. What has it been like for you being on that end of what has been another kind of running boom that has <laughs> then showed itself in the most uh, registrations for a Boston marathon in the history of, of the race. Yeah. I mean, you know, I'll take it. (laughs) 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 And I was, I was telling my wife just the other day that, um, you know, so I've written more than 30 books and, you know, some have been more successful than (laughs) others. And, um, you know, I've been on a lot of podcasts in yours is the best by far, by the way. Oh, thank um, you. But yes, <laughs> but I've been on a lot of podcasts, um, you know, e- even recently. 
and the, the two books that 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 people want, you know, hosts want to talk about more than any of the others are 80-20 running and how bad you want it, which is more focused on sports psychology, which which is also a big interest of, of mine. And uh, you know, I think, you know, you know, the you know, so the the interest in both of those books is reflective of where the sport is. Um, or you know, I should say the sports, you know, because uh, although 80-20 running is specific to running, um, how bad you want it is it's much broader. Um, and uh, and so I mean, it, it's honestly it's gratifying when, when when something you write just has staying power like that that has has some legs because um, you know I, I felt that I I was right <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> when when I wrote the books um, and and so and for me you know yeah I mean. I, I, I get some, some nice royalty checks twice a year when, when a book continues to sell. Um, but it, you know, I honestly, you know, in all honesty, like more gratifying than that to me is like the, the influence because, yeah. you know, I mentioned like, I mentioned why I wrote 80, 20 running and that really is why I wrote it. Like I was trying to save my fellow runners from terrible guidance. Um, and so you know, to me, the fact that like, you know, people are still reading that book, you know, however many years later tells me that like, you know, that there's a lot of people like you out there. Like I I don't get to talk to everyone who reads a copy of my book, but I'm talking to you and you're, you're telling me that it benefited you. Um, and that feels really good. Yeah, it, it, it should. It it absolutely should. You, You mentioned the psychology component, how you, you care about that. You're a coach as well. What, when, when did that enter the picture? And, and I, I mean, it just seems like it's your personality. So I don't even want to ask like, why did you decide to do it? But like, what, what is the rewarding part about that, that you have really kind of found yourself gravitating towards in your coaching career? Well, you know, it it it, uh, it all goes back to you know what happened to me as as a, a young athlete. You know, when I became a head head case, um, you know, I, I developed um, just this terror of of the discomfort that um, that you, you, one had to embrace in order to fulfill their potential in the sport, and um, and you know that. <laughs> you know, it, it was really, it was kind of a traumatic experience, honestly, you know, like, I, and I didn't really, I didn't have to really sift through it until I got back into running. And I just, I didn't like that guy. You know, I didn't like the kid who just wimped out, you know, and faked an injury in the middle of a race. I mean, that is just shameful, you know? Um, and I wasn't cool with that. And, and so for me, when, when I got serious about running and then also got into triathlon, yeah, I wanted to like, you know, see how fast I could go and, and try to, you know, win races and stuff. But more important than that to me was like, you know, becoming brave. <laughs> like I, I wanted to, I wanted to compete bravely and see myself as that kind of person. Um, and it worked, <laughs> you know, like, I mean, my, my, my transformation in terms of like, you know, like, you know, my mental fitness was, really quite astonishing. You know, it's like I went from, you know, literally faking injuries to getting to the point where absolutely nothing scared me. And like, and I mean nothing like, in fact, like I crave, I, I got to the point where I, I craved and relished the same, you know, pain that I used to flee from. It was like, it was 180 degrees. And for me, I'm like, well, if that's possible for me, then it's possible <laughs> and so, you know, I have something to share. And then also, you know, you know, parallel to that, there's some, you know, just really, really fascinating research being done by sports psychologists and, and even exercise physiologists with an interest in, in psychology, just, you know, learning, understanding the, the role of the brain and the mind uh, in endurance performance. And so, you know, that information really um, it, it allowed me to make sense of my own experience and, just gave me, you know, like a more complete story to tell to other athletes. I wonder, Matt, like when you talk to an athlete that is going through what you went through then, like what's the piece of advice that you give them? Because I imagine that you've thought about it a lot because you're like, I wish someone would have told this to me back then. What, what, what do you say? I mean, number one is like, there's hope. 
you know, quite honestly, like, you know, just like I, I like to put myself forward as an example, you know, it's just like, I mean, it's one thing if you look at like the Steve Prefontaines of the world who are just like, you know, really, really tough and everyone knows it. Most of all, Steve Prefontaine, <laughs> you know, it's like, well, you know, we admire that, but like, you know, you know, if that's all, you know, it can be like, well, that's great for him, but you know, that's not me. But, you know, for, for me, it's like, no, I started off here and I ended up there and like, you know, you know, that's relatable, you know, to a lot of people who feel like they're, they're closer to where I started. Um, so that's the number one thing. And then, and then it's just like, then it's the how, <laughs> right? Okay. It is possible. Like how, and, and the thing I try to impress upon people, it, you know, there is a little bit of a, you know, it's a little bit of a catch 22. Cause like, I mean, Honestly, you know, I don't think everyone has what it takes to be really mentally tough. I mean, how could that possibly be the case? Like, and, and, and so, you know, so I try to give people hope, uh, but, but right after that, I, 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 I give them the real, which is like, it's hard, you know, like it's not a magic wand and you sort of have to be tough to get tough. Like, it, you know, you have to like, because it, it's a, it's a journey, you, you know, it's like, there's no pill you can take, you know, like your, your Garmin can't do it for you. You know, it's on you. And, and so like, like if you're, if you're a truly hopeless mental weakling, well, you know, that journey ain't happening. <laughs> like, cause like, you're going to be like, Oh, there's hope. Wait, I have to work for it. Screw that. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, like, you know, so I, I like to like, you know, let people know, like inspire people like, Hey, this type of transformation is possible, but guess what? You know, now the, now the bad news, you know, it's on you. Uh, no one can do it for you and it's hard. Um, but, and that, but it's simply the truth. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can get down to brass tacks of like, okay, what does it actually look like? You know, what's step one, what's step two, what's step three? Yeah. I have my next marathon on Sunday and I'm essentially using this week as I get the final few, you know, runs in is like, it's all mental prep. It's all like, hey, you're gonna go out there, and and you know you, you know you. I hope to be out there for under three hours, and I know it's gonna be painful, and I know especially at the end it's gonna be hard, and especially you know the last 10k is gonna be what it is. But it's like, the, I, I I worked all summer for it, right? You know, I put in all the time on my feet, I, I did all the hard workouts, I did all the easy runs, and it's all leading up to this. So it's like, it's it's funny. It's like not a fear for me. It's more of a this is going to happen. It's going to be painful, but you're going to get through it and you're going to come out and on, on the other side. And hopefully you're, you're happy with the, with the race as it unfolded for you. Yeah. I call that uh, bracing. Um, there's a whole chapter on that in how bad you want it. Um, and it's just that like, um, and you know, there's, there's, I mean, this is what the, the highest performing athletes do just instinctually. Um, but there's also pretty good science showing, oh yeah, this is, this is a good, healthy coping skill. Like if it's gonna suck, well, then you should expect it to suck, <laughs> you know? Cause like, you know, like, you know, it's like going to the dentist to get some uh, painful procedure done and just trying to like lie to yourself. Oh, it'll be fine. You know, it really hurt the last time I had the same procedure done, but this time it might not hurt. Well then, you know, cause it, your expectations are, uh, are misaligned to the reality and then it's actually, it's going to, it's going to feel even worse. So, you know, bracing yourself, like sort of expecting it to suck. It sounds like a kind of pessimism, but it's really not. You're just doing yourself a favor. Cause like, you know, like I used to tell myself and I still tell athletes go into every race expecting that it could well be the hardest race you've ever done. And like that way it can't possibly be harder than you expect. <laughs> <laughs> Um, before we go, I had a few more for you. I wanted to go back to the beginning of our conversation talking about the sport of running then versus now. I mean, obviously we could spend a a whole other hour just on shoes, but I wonder beyond technology, how is running changing? How has it stayed the same? Do you think from when you fell in love with it as an 11 year old to where the sport finds itself as we near the end of 2023? Wow. Yeah. I mean, it has changed in a lot of ways and it has stayed the same in a lot of ways. Um, you know, it changes, you know, technology, what hasn't changed. And I think what will never change is like running is the oldest sport, you know, maybe running and wrestling. And it's just like, it's so primal 
and and that that is its greatest appeal. You know, like you know, I'm fortunate to just be I'm surrounded by runners all the time, and I just I just I love like people you know people don't like running they love run- yes. <laughs> they love running and it just doesn't matter you know like whether they're you know tall or short young or old fast or slow none of it matters like you know like like the appeal it's not you know it doesn't speak to everyone but like it speaks the same way to everyone it speaks to just like just it just feels right you know because there's just like this ancient ancient history and and tradition that hasn't changed it won't change and i love it uh, I, I love that 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 is true and then one thing that that has changed that i think that yeah, I get some of the changes are like, eh, you know, like technology, probably net negative. <laughs> um, but one thing, uh, you know, when my dad ran the 1983 Boston Marathon, it was like, it was a very homogenous race field. Like it was, it was a lot of white men. <laughs> yep. Yep. And if you go back to Boston today, that is no longer the case. Like it is. And so the diversity has increased tremendously. And I think that is to the benefit of the event and the sport. And then of course the people who get to participate, who didn't feel like they were welcome or had a place or, you know, or didn't even know about it um, before. So that, that's pretty cool to see, you know, the sport sport just getting more and more diverse. I couldn't agree more. Um, Earlier I asked you what you missed, the most about running since you're unable to now what like what was your favorite part about running whether it was i don't know the the feelings you had a, a run in particular a, a workout a long like what what was your favorite part um i'll i'll answer a slightly different question okay. like like a like a like a politician um, <laughs> um well you know i used to i used to wonder like when i was um you know like in my you know, late twenties, very early thirties, like, you know, so kind of like in the early years of like really getting back into the sport in a serious way, I used to wonder, like, for some reason I had it in my head that like 38 was the cutoff. Like I, like, like I couldn't, I would never set any PRs after I turned 38. Um, and I used to wonder like, you know, what, cause I, I was so focused on improving uh, like measurably, like that was the hook for me. Like, I want to get better. I want to get better. Um, I wondered, you know, like, will I just lose all interest, you know, when I've set my last PR and, you know, the way it ended up happening is I just, I just blew right past 38. And yeah, I, in fact, I did set some PRs um, in, in my forties, but at the same time, you know, when I got COVID and then long COVID in my very late forties. By that point, I was pretty sure I was done. I was done <laughs> done with the PRs, but I was still as passionate about and engaged in the sport as ever. And it was because it just like the, the journey kept taking me new places. Like for, for such a simple repetitive activity, I was just amazed. Like it was, it was just, I was never in the same place as a runner. And I felt like you know, one thing it was like kind of the coach and, and the and the student of the sport in me. Like I felt like, all right, well, I'm I'm definitely past my physical prime. I'm not getting faster, but I'm still getting better at this sport in other ways. Like like I'm figuring out like smarter. I'm, I'm figuring out how to get more with less. Like stuff. I'm like, oh man, I wish I'd known this ten years ago. <laughs> um, and so it was. It remained like very. Um, intellectually stimulating for me. It's like, you know, I can just like, like this, uh, I felt like this journey is never going to stop until it did. So I finish every podcast by asking my guest about what they're chasing. It could be a literal time goal. It could be qualifying for something, or it could just be a feeling. Matt Fitzgerald, what are you chasing? <sighs> chasing a couple things right now, but um, I, I think number one is like, you know, this, this dream run camp that I mentioned before is like, it it's, it's different for me and it's something I wouldn't be doing if I were still running, I think, you know, it's just like, it, that's sort of like turning out a lemons into lemonade uh, type of thing where, um, you know, like, you know, I run this thing out of my house, it, you know, like I have strangers sleeping in my beds like all the time. Um, and, um, you know, it's, it's pretty like, it's a pretty vulnerable space to be in. Um, 
but there's a magic to it. You know what I mean? Just like, you know, the, like, just like the, you know, the, the, there's a depth to these encounters. Cause like I'm living with these folks. Like I'm like, I, I get to know them really, really deeply in a relatively short period of time. And it's like, you know, I've always craved intense experiences. It's one of the reasons I, I love being an endurance athlete. And so like, you know, I've created something unique and, and pretty special uh, and intense in a good way, but like it's not anywhere near where where I know it can be in the future. And I like that. You know, it's like part of me wants to hit the fast forward button and see what it's going to become. But that's really what I'm chasing. Like I, I know there's going to be a moment in the future where I, where I'm I'm looking around at, at what what has become of Dream Run Camp, and I just feel like that deep satisfaction is like this is what I'm chasing. So that is what I'm chasing. <laughs> Very cool. Matt Fitzgerald, thanks for joining me today on Chasing Three Hours. Right on. My pleasure. Thanks again to Matt Fitzgerald for joining me on today's episode. Thanks to Peak Performance. Stop by one of their four Omaha metro area locations and mention the podcast for $15 off your first pair of shoes at regular price. Thanks to Ian Alio for production assistance, as well as music and sound design. Thanks to Riss for the cover art. Head to Chasing3Hours.com for more from me as I write about my experiences out on the running trail, races, and a whole lot more. If you liked what you heard today, be sure to subscribe, rate, review, and maybe share with a friend as well. New episodes will drop on Friday mornings. Enjoy your long run this weekend.